Hi, I'm Chris Wright, and welcome to this week's edition of Right on the Nail. We have a news roundtable today to catch up on events that have been going on in British politics over the last couple of weeks. After last week's episode, which was actually a very interesting one. In fact, I just want to make a little plug for last week's interview episode, where I talked to top business executive Lisa Gordon about all things business, what it takes to be successful, what's wrong with business today, and how to fix it. We also hear her highly insightful political viewpoints from the position of a woman very high up in the business world and get the chance to reflect on our successes and occasional failures working at Chrysalis together. It's a real highlight. Don't miss it. Anyway, back to where we are in British politics. And since the last two weeks, we have had both party conferences. The Conservative Party conference in Manchester, slightly maybe derailed by the fact that HS2 was being derailed going to Manchester at the last minute, and the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. On today's roundtable, we are joined by former political editor of the Sunday Mirror, Nigel Nelson, writer and broadcaster and regular contributor to Right on the Nail, Christina Patterson, and another regular contributor, Labour councillor and cabinet member for environment and community safety at Preston Council, Freddie Bailey. It's good to have you all with us today. Who won the battle of the conferences? Who had the best conference? Nigel. Uh, I think it's undoubtedly Labour for this one. Uh, Labour's conference went pretty much according to plan. There were a few noises off, as there always are at Labour conferences. It wouldn't be a Labour conference without them. Uh, a bit for momentum. Obviously, some of the Palestinian flag flying came at an unfortunate time. Uh, when you compare that with the Tory conference, I think that the decision by Rishi Sunak to announce the cancellation of the Manchester leg of HS2 in Manchester during his speech was just plain weird. Uh, then we got the oddity of Suella Braverman talking about a hurricane of migrants. Now, that seemed to be a naked pitch for the leadership when Rishi Sunak goes. And Penny Morden's stand-up and fight speech was just plain bizarre. Uh, I mean, certainly the delegates didn't know what she was on about. And all the great PR she got from sword-wielding seems to have gone out the window. I mean, should, should should they not have held back on the announcement? Apart from the fact that it was in Manchester that they were that they're having conference, could they have waited another couple of weeks? Well, they could have done. Uh, I rather think that what they should have done is actually announced it before conference rather than afterwards. So uh, that would have given Rishi Sunak the chance to talk about how he was going to spend the 36 billion, which of course he did in his speech. He he went into some detail about projects that would be funded. And subsequently, he said that um, that was illustrative rather than, uh, rather, rather than a fact. So again, it was just a bit peculiar. I and mean, he was trying to pretend all the way through that no decision had been made on HS2 until the morning that he announced it. Well, that just can't be true. So I think he lost a lot of kudos by not getting the issue out of the way before conference rather than during it. It was also rather bizarre, wasn't it, that it was clear that the decision had been taken before conference started, but it was also clear that they weren't going to announce it until the, the prime minister's speech. So that was really strange. Christina, 
it was clear the decision had been taken. Why not come up front or, or as Nigel says, announce it up front? There's all this like playing around. We don't know. No, all, all the other ministers having to sort of pretend they don't know what's happening when we all mm. knew what was happening. Yeah, I think it's a, another indication, actually, of Rishi Sunak's inexperience as a politician and the fact that he does, in spite of many talents he has, he does lack an instinct for raw politics. And I think, actually, he was just looking at the spreadsheets and thinking, oh, I don't know. I mean, I think fundamentally he had made the decision a while back, but I think he was kind of getting more information in and thinking how to cope with the fact that, because it was leaked, wasn't it? That was the problem. It was leaked because that photographer saw that document. And that's why it came out the week before conference. And that's why it was hanging over, or was it the week even before that? And that's why it was hanging over the whole of conference. And I think he was like a rabbit in the headlights and he didn't know quite how to deal with it and then thought the only way to deal with it was to kind of pretend it was part of some grand strategy and turn it into a positive. In that very peculiar speech where it was kind of, here are some random things I'm slightly interested in and here's something, a huge infrastructure project which, you know, represents the current state and future state of Britain, which I'm about to act. So I thought I thought Tory party conference was a complete, to use a technical term, shit show. And I'm sure that for all of those um, involved in it, that was absolutely apparent. And all those people who the, who were kind of queuing up to see Liz Truss and, and, and clapping Suella Braverman for talking about hurricanes of migrants, I think they are such a minuscule, minuscule proportion of the British pe- population. I think they're totally out of touch with reality. They're out of touch with the electorate. And I think as a, an indication of where the Tory party is likely to go when they lose the next election, it's very worrying because although it's all very well for those of us on the centre left to think oh great they're completely unelectable they're a bunch of nutcases the fact is pendulums do swing and because Labour will be taking over if it takes over which I hope it does in a terrible financial climate there is no guarantee of a second term obviously I hope they get one but if they don't get one the alternative is the Tories and the Tories could and that could well be the Tories under a crazy spread of braverman yeah, let's come back to where the Tories might be if they don't win. And let's let's ask Freddie, what was the mood like in Liverpool at Labour Party conference then? I think I think the mood was one where we're not expecting to be in government, but we're in a very, very good position. And I think that it had the atmosphere of of, you know, it won't be long until we now have the power to, you know, hopefully make those sort of transformative changes that, you know, this country needs. And I wouldn't even just say transformative changes. I'd just say just a basic change of a government that needs to operate on a professional level. And I think that the whole conference, yes, as you're rightly sure, there's a little bit of drama with the whole Glittergate, etc. You know, I think that's to be expected at, at party conferences every now and again. Obviously, security wasn't the best but you know ultimately i think it was a, a jubilant atmosphere and i think it's one that right we're in a really good position here the polls are still staying solid and actually you know this time next year we could potentially be the the, the party in power and implementing the policies that we've been talking about it looks like uh, going into the conference season it was labor party had just to make sure we don't do anything to trip up uh because we're in the lead and the Conservatives have got to come out with some positive vision for how they're going to take us forward. And actually, my perception could well be that not only did the Labour Party not trip up, but they actually came over as being quite positive about things. And maybe the Conservatives, Nigel, did trip up. 
Yeah, I, I think that what, what Rishi Sunak was trying to do was to distance himself from his own party. I mean, one of the extraordinary parts of his speech was to rubbish the last 30 years, uh, saying that every, uh, every prime minister since Margaret Thatcher had basically got it wrong. Now, of course, during those 30 years, we've got f five Tory prime ministers from John Major uh, to Liz Truss that he, that he was pretty much throwing under a bus. So this was very much trying to create the cult of Rishi. What he was saying was, forget about the party. It may not may not have been great over the last 13 years. Vote for me. I'll do better. And one of the most symbolic parts of that was his plan to eradicate smoking. Now, because the Tories uh, traditionally believe in freedom of choice, people taking personal responsibility, this was an extremely unconservative thing to do. Whatever you think about it on health grounds, it was just an odd kind of thing to announce at a party conference. Uh, however, that's what he did. That proved he was distancing himself from his own party. And if anything, the whole thing was, was uh, Rishi Sunak being more presidential than prime ministerial, as witnessed by his wife introducing him, which is a very American thing to do in presidential elections. Yeah, it was very strange. And the smoking thing, obviously, it, it is almost the, the antithesis of what the Conservative Party stands for. Government getting involved in like the nanny state, I think we call it, and telling people how they should lead their lives. But in terms of United Divided, to what extent did they come over as being a, a disunited party then, Nigel? Uh, well, I, mean, I think that the, that, that the whole point was it became a kind of catwalk for, um, uh, for future, uh, pr well, pr 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 prospective leaders to strut their stuff. I mean, there's no question that Suella Braverman was there to say, right, after we lose the next election, what the Tory party has got to do is shift right, because that's what the people want. So, uh, so it was very much, much a, a kind of setting out their stall for what happened, for who replaces Richard Sunak. Now, if you compare that to the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, whether you, whether you like it or not, has got an iron grip on his party, which he's been uh, working on since he became leader. And as a result of that, there were no leadership cha uh, challenges there, that broadly speaking, the party was united behind him. And what he set out to do, he is very cautious, what he set out to do was to show that Labour really is the uh, a government in waiting, uh, and it's ready and able to take power. Well, let's talk about two particular individuals and their role in this. Um, and uh, starting with Nigel Farage. Christina, what was Nigel Farage doing, being so prominent at the Conservative Party conference, dancing with Priti Patel, visibly available all the time? What was his, his reason for being there? Um, only Nigel Farage knows the complexities of what goes on in his head. But I think what he was really doing was uh, signalling that he hasn't had quite enough attention recently. Obviously, he's got his slot at GB News, which is the ostensible reason he was there um, and was able to get a pass to absolutely everything. But I think he probably was signalling that he knows his, you know, Brexit is over. Obviously, it's a disaster, but it has happened and it will not be reversed, not for a very long time, if ever. So he's done that. But he hasn't quite written off, I think, politics as in, you know, beyond a spectator sport. I think he still sees 
probably sees a, a political role for himself somewhere. He knows he has managed to shift the Tory party significantly to the right. That's one of his many achievements in the last uh, 10 years or so. And I think he probably does quite like to play with the idea of playing a role in politics. The actual reality of public service is something completely different, and I think he'd absolutely hate it. But as far as he's concerned, if he can sort of strut around getting limelight in various different places and also kind of scare the Tory party and force them into more right-wing policies than he might, than they might otherwise go for, I think, you know, I think he likes kind of to cast a heavy shadow, and I think that's what he was doing. Mm. Uh, before I come back to Freddie, let me just ask Nigel, is there any chance of your namesake, other Nigel, becoming leader of the Conservative Party? <laughs> um, I think that'd be a long way off. He's very tied up with the, the Reform Party at the moment. Uh, but it was significant that Rishi Sunak didn't rule out uh, Nigel Farage rejoining the Tories should he wish to. I think Christina is right that what Nigel Farage likes to do is influence events, influence politics. Um, and when you consider what he achieved through Brexit, again, whether you, whether you like it or not, it probably makes him the most influential politician of the last last 20 years he's not about to give up that position and is he popular with the with your average sort of 60 year old plus daily mail reader conservative member i mean the, the boris johnson supporters for example if boris isn't a viable option to come back which he probably isn't is Nigel Farage like next best with that group of people? Yes, I mean, they, they, they like him hugely, they, 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 those kind of people. He'd be popular in the Red Wall, for instance, who are uh, largely Brexiteers. So again, he would appeal to those people. But the idea of him actually uh, getting into the Tory party and becoming leader, uh, I think that really is far off. That uh, probably what the Tory party should have done when Donald Trump was president is make him our, our US ambassador, our ambassador to Washington. Uh, he probably would have actually had a better relationship with the White House during that period than anybody else could have done. But I think that that's the kind of limits for, that you can see for, uh, for Nigel Farage. I, I don't think the idea of being leader or prime minister is really on the cards. As, as, as it is, let's not forget, though, that he has, you know, tried to become an MP and failed seven times. And then, he, you know, and then he's done many other things. His focus then was obviously on Brexit. And then obviously once that happens, I do think maybe this is his, his way of thinking, right, can I get in through the back door for an existing party? I, I'm not saying it'll be in, in the immediate future, but if Labour do win the next election and then someone like Suella Braverman is then becomes a leader of the Tory party, it's still a mess. You know, he might think in five years' time, you never know. I, I do think he still has ambitions on, on Parliament. I think you're right, Freddie, but whilst we're talking about divided parties and clearly the Conservatives are have been divided for a long time and, and still are divided. It's not all that rosy in the, the Labour Party. I know Nigel says quite rightly that Keir Starmer has an iron grip on things, but there is still a, a significant element in the Labour Party of the Corbynistas who probably aren't terribly happy about uh, where the Labour Party is currently positioned. I think... I understand your question. I sometimes think the use of language when we talk about, say, the Corbynistas, I know it sometimes is quite easy to explain, but I'd obviously just say as, you know, socialists. But I do think that there's a little bit of a rift, but I do think some of that has been 
quelled a little bit at the party conference because obviously it's the first time Keir Starm and obviously the Labour Party since he's become leader has properly introduced some workable policies such as you know with the VAT on private schools reinstating reinstating HS2 you know party conference voted overwhelmingly to renationalise the energy they're looking at going after the Covid fraud that Rishi Sunak you know cancelled and you know increasing neighbourhood policing so and, and then also getting rid of the non-dom taxpayer status. So there's certain policies that have been released at conference. That yes, I'm not saying they're absolutely revolutionary, but I think they're good, simple policies that appease to Labour voters and also, you know, people who might have supported Jeremy Corbyn. But also, I do think you've got to remember as well that I don't think this is the sort of completed Labour Party manifesto. And I do think you've got to keep some cards up your sleeve, haven't you? And you can't at party conference just announce all your policies and then give the Tories some kind of arguments against them. So I think this is just a nice little taste of, you know, what a Labour government might look like. And then hopefully when they release a manifesto, there might be something a little bit more concrete to go with that as well. Freddie, but but continuing with Jeremy Corbyn, is the the Palestine... uh, yeah, Israel situation, a potential Achilles heel, because there is still a bit of a divide within the Labour Party o- over that. Yes, I think I think there is a divide. and But I think one of the reasons why is it's such a sensitive topic. And unfortunately, it's not like any kind of conflict we've seen, because it seems like whichever side, you know, you either support or don't support, people then make judgments on you for that. So I think it's possible to be, well, when I say it's possible to be, of course it is. You know, I would like to think, well, I, I'm pro the Palestinian people and obviously I'm pro the Israeli people who obviously have been killed and on both sides. But you can also be anti-Hamas as well. I mean, obviously, they are a terrorist organisation who obviously, have, you know, especially this week, have conflicted some absolutely horrific atrocities. But you can absolutely call it out on both sides. I think one of the reasons why it's been contentious so much is because whenever you say in a simple sentence, which side are you on, people then will judge you for either or and i think sometimes that it's just so weird how it's sort of like usually if you're on the right you're pro this if you're on the left you're pro that and this conflict really does highlight that and i think it's quite unusual for that to be the case i think sometimes politics should be a side of this and ultimately what needs to happen is we need to stop you know putting flags on stuff and we need to just think actually we need to just be pro people in this and we need to think we need to put conflict aside but in terms of how that might affect the labor party obviously it's quite clear that Corbyn was pro-Palestine and now, you know, Keir Starmer is saying more pro-Israel. I think ultimately there needs to be more cross-party talk because it is more of a a global situation, this, rather than, you know, just individual opinions. What is not complicated is that what happened at the weekend was very clearly a horrific terrorist act. The issue is how Israel responds to that. And I would say that, uh, I mean, I think personally, I think that Hamas, you know, what did they expect? They knew that Gaza would be targeted. They knew that uh, thousands, if not tens of thousands of Gazans would be massacred as a result of this, however you present that. And um, and they were perfectly happy to pay that price. So ultimately, obviously, the responsibility lies with Gaza. But it is, of course, horrific to hear about schools and hospitals and children being destroyed in this war. And we saw the challenge politically for British politicians last night on Newsnight when, um, when Victoria Derbyshire presented Emily Thornbury with the legal definition of, uh, you know, of what is a war crime. And 
withdrawing food and fuel to civilians is a war crime. And Emily Thornberry couldn't say that because if she said that, even though she's a lawyer and she knows perfectly well what international law is, if she said that, she would be seen to be siding with the Palestinians and everybody has to use this stock phrase, Israel has a right to defend itself. And of course, Israel does have a right to defend itself. The big question is what will be effective and what the price will be. And that's, in a way, not for any of us to say, but very clearly the price is going to be horrific. I, I also think as well that we, we've kind of forgotten about, you know, the just innocent children on both sides who are growing up in a war zone. And sometimes it's like we've just totally forgotten about that, haven't we? And and that's I don't think we really have forgotten. Fr- Freddie, I don't think we have forgotten. I think that the tragedy is that the... the uh, there have been so many politicians in my lifetime and, and there have been rays of hope at particular times, not uh, probably most recently the Oslo Accords. But the fact is that when you have, um, for example, Hamas, who refuse to recognise the right of Israel to exist, there is no there is no solution because you cannot then have a Palestinian state, an Israeli state, if half the people on your doorstep refuse the right to exist of Israel. So nobody has forgotten. It's just that there isn't a solution. Yes. Now let's let's move on because this is a, this is a this is such a huge subject. We could spend the next two hours discussing it. But before we do, I was going to ask Nigel. Obviously, the Conservative Party conference was front page on all the the national news broadcasts all the time because you know it was the big story of the week. The Labour Party conference was relegated to a few minutes segment at the end of the news broadcast because of what was happening in in Israel. Was that a good or a bad thing for the Labour Party? Uh, I think that the Labour Party actually got more column inches and airtime than I expected them to uh, to do. That when a a really major news event like this breaks, you expect that to dominate anyway, and rightly so. Uh, but Labour still still actually got through. Um, also, I mean, the the point that that uh, I think everyone has made that the the. Uh, British political classes are united on this. You can be anti-Hamas and find what they did uh, abhorrent and still believe in an independent Palestinian state. That's the position of Rishi Sunak. It was the position of Keir Starmer. It was also the position of world leaders when they issued their statement a couple of days ago, uh, where they they were condemning Hamas, but still they're maintaining that there should be a two-state solution to the problem the scottish uh, leaders uh, in-laws are actually in gaza right now so i mean you know people are affected we're not sure who's on which side in terms of family family situations obviously a lot of people are more have more relations in israel but there are relations of people prominent in the uk that are in the palestinian bit as well so it's it's a confusing situation in terms of uh, in terms of starmer and sunak Points out of 10, Nigel, for both of them as to how they came over. Uh, I think Rishi Sunak gets a five out of ten. It was a bit uh, neither here nor there, and his attempt to reposition himself uh, as a kind of president I don't think worked. I would give Starmer certainly eight out of ten for keeping a a real grip on what was going on, having a conference that went largely as planned, and also for for the way that he dealt with the man who threw glitter over him. Now, I've talked to many politicians uh, about being attacked, and it's a really frightening 
experience at the time you don't know whether this is glitter uh, or acid uh, it can be absolutely terrifying and I thought that he pulled it off really well um, and there was speculation it was actually all set up I don't think it was but um, certainly it couldn't have gone better for Keir Starmer so he could take his jacket off roll up his sleeves and show he's ready for business yeah, you're quite right. He, he did he did turn a potential disaster into a triumph. But Christina, how would you rate the two out of ten? Oh, um, I think I think I would agree with five for Sunak, probably seven for his wife. Um, for Starmer, I have to say that I, I thought the way he coped with that with the um, protester was unbelievable. I think it takes a genuinely confident man to give one of the speeches of his life with glitter in his hair. And he did it totally unruffled, utterly confident. And that, I think, shows the mettle of the man. Uh, but I think most of all, what I felt watching his speech and also Rachel Reeves's is something I haven't felt for such a long time, which is a sense of genuine hope and a sense of the possibility of feeling proud of my country again, which I haven't felt for a very long time. So I felt he was wonderful. I felt he was wonderful. I felt I felt eight, maybe nine actually. Eight. I thought nine, his speech, maybe nine. I think his speech was really nine. Okay. Yeah. And Fred and Freddie, how about you? Marks out of ten for both of them. Yeah, I'd have to give Starmer an eight. I think it was one of those where there's a lot of expectation on him, and I think he delivered, uh, especially under the circumstances as well. I would say at the time, Rishi Sunak, I'd have probably given him, and I'm being kind of three, but considering obviously the overall what's happened then after his big speech about uh, about getting rid of HS2, but then delivering these programmes that will level up not just the Manchester and, and Birmingham, but we'll level up all the north. And it turns out, well, most of the projects are down south. And then it turns out as well, they're just ideas and possibilities. You're thinking, even being a three, as I said, that was being kind. I think I've got to reduce that to a 0 0.5, to be honest. And I'm still being kind. Okay. All right. Now, having talked about uh, Sunak and Starmer, let's move on to, to the economy, because that is likely, at the end of the day, to be the main issue when the election does take place. And the battleground here was almost as uh, prominent as the battleground between the leaders, uh, Rachel Reeves against Jeremy Hunt. So how did both of those do, Nigel? Who, who came over best? And what was the, what's the public's perception in terms of who can best manage the economic problems that we're having to cope with? I think again that the that the uh, the prize goes to Rachel Reeves. I think it was it was Quinton Letts in the Daily Mail who described her as uh, Gordon Brown in a Cleopatra haircut, and I think that's about right. That that she was very much emulating the Gordon Brown school of economics, uh, which was only to borrow to invest, uh, which was Gordon Brown's golden rule. She showed that she intended to be fiscally responsible, not spending money that uh, the government doesn't have. Have, all those are the right messages to send. Traditionally, Labour have always been weak on economic management. And uh, the great achievement of 1997 and Tony Blair was to show that, in fact, that they that uh, they were good economic managers. Tony Blair uh, was able to reduce, reduce debt. Uh, we're now at 100% de uh, debt. So all those things that Rachel Rees was talking about, with the little bits of extra such 
as ending the charitable status of private schools. So 1.5 billion from that, uh, ending the the uh, making sure non-DOMs pay full tax in Britain. Another 3.2 billion, assuming all those tax uh, those tax receipts come in. All that shows a party that is planned out uh, its future in government. Christina, uh, what do you think the impact was of uh, the former governor of the Bank of England coming out with a statement that, you know, supporting Rachel Reeves and saying that she was a great economist and the British economy was in very good shape in her hands? Yeah, well, I think that was a real coup for her. And given that it was George Osborne who brought him in to be governor of the Bank of England, um, great, you know, kind of one in the eye for the Tories. I think, um, I think it, uh, as Nigel says, the, the Tories have traditionally been the party of economic competence, and they have absolutely destroyed that. Uh, Liz Truss and Quasi uh, uh, Kwarteng, more than anyone, have just completely and Boris Johnson actually to some point and extent because he he couldn't really do maths and he didn't care about any of it. He just wanted to spend money. But uh, with Liz Truss, it was you know pure ideology and people are still paying the price for that now. I think because the fact that Rachel Reeves is an economist and has worked at the Bank of England and now has the actual endorsement of the former governor of the Bank of England. And his speech was wonderful. I mean, you know, the idea, I remember when Ian Katz from Newsnight described her as boring snoring. Well, it was absolutely gripping. She had, you know, iron control over that that audience. So I think, you know, bring it on. I can't wait. Unfortunately, Labour will inherit an economy in a terrible state, but they have been clearly doing lots of very, very deep thinking about how they're going to fund things. They are not going to throw money at public services, which is where the Corbynistas and indeed the British people might be disappointed. But on the other hand, they are absolutely serious about fostering growth. They are serious about house building. And I think that, you know, the fact that Keir Starmer describes himself as a YIMBY, well, you have to make a choice ultimately. Either you want there to be enough housing for people, and in particular for young people who can't afford to get on the housing ladder, or you don't. And if you do, you have to build it. And if you want to build it, you have to go onto green green belt. So I think they have made a very serious announcement this week. And I, I think it could, you know, they will inherit a very bad economy. But I think their plans for um, great British energy, for uh, green revolution and for house building will make it a significant difference. What an economy needs is sensible ideas and a stable government for it to make you know that that's that that's the fundamentals of an economy and obviously you look at the past say i'll do obviously as a labor person say the past 13 years but you just look at the past three four years it's been absolutely chaos from brexit different prime ministers mini budgets rishi sunak etc etc so it does need some stability and i do think that's what labor absolutely provided and then within that stability they've yes they've not gone as as far as i would personally like but unfortunately as a socialist i'm also a realist as well what they have announced is some easy policies which can get more money into the government, into the coffers of the government, and then they can then reinvest that into our public services, which absolutely do need repairing. And, you know, I think it was also very key that they said, I think it was Keir Starmer that says he, he needs at least two terms. And I don't think he's just trying to say that, look, I don't want to be prime minister for, for at least 10 years. I think he's sort of, you know, saying that, look, if we win the next election, we cannot promise a lot of things here we need to steady the ship first we need to repair what needs repairing and then we can then progress on on top of that on, on the good foundations that rachel reed provided at conference well that's quite right i mean it's not going to be uh, a five-year turnaround it's going to probably get worse before it gets better i can't really see any, any alternative but mark carney of course was rubbished by the daily mail because he was a remainder anyway so 
clearly not someone with that, that was of sound mind. But uh, Nigel, moving on to Jeremy Hunt, uh, is his position secure? I mean, he he didn't seem to like shine at at the conference. So, is, are we likely to see a change of chancellor between now and the election? Uh, I would think not, on the basis that um, that the message that Jeremy Hunt had to sell was not going to be a popular one at a Conservative conference. And that basically is, listen, guys, we cannot cut taxes until inflation is brought under control. Now, that's not going to happen until at least next year. So there's no way in the forthcoming budget you're going to see uh, tax reductions. And that is what a significant wing of the Tory party Party, think is the only way to win the next election. Hence why Liz Truss, Truss's sort of uh, speech there was so incredibly popular. Liz Truss may not be popular in the country, but she certainly is with a section of the Tory party. Yeah. Christina, how do you feel Jeremy Hunt's performed in Manchester then? Um, look, I think I think he's been pretty lacklustre, but I think when he became Chancellor, I think he made it clear that the deal was that you know he would be allowed to kind of have significant control and and he inherited a total mess and i think i think that nigel's right i think he probably will stay in that job but it's a very unpleasant job i don't think he enjoys it to be particularly particularly i mean i think you know obviously it's great to say i'm chancellor of the exchequer but not great to say i'm chancellor of the exchequer of a, a country in massive decline which hugely shot itself in the foot which is in a total mess where our public services are dying etc cetera, etc cetera. i think um and also it's not very not a very natural job for him, I don't think. I, I actually think in lots of ways he was not a terrible health secretary. I think that was his best role. Um, but I, I think the Tories have, they, they're kind of just limping on now. I think the whole thing is just a kind of holding operation. And I think the the idea of presenting President Rishi as this kind of um, a new person who, you know, unfortunately happens to be a Tory and, and thinks that everything the Tories has done is a complete mess. I mean, I suppose it's their only shot, but I mean, it's not, I can't see it working. It's, it's, it's a kind of ridiculous shot to take. He does seem like he'd be more comfortable at something back at health or education or something like that. He's not, yeah, maybe a safe pair of hands in the role that he's currently got, but it's not really one where he's able to inspire the country that he's really going to turn things around it, it significantly. Freddie, you think Rachel Reeve certainly won that particular battle then? Yeah, absolutely. And I know, Chris, you touched upon Rishi Sunak, you know, Slayton, six. Tory Prime Ministers previously and then celebrating Margaret Thatcher, you know, about saying we are the party of low taxes. But then, you know, then Jeremy Hunt came on and says, but we're not cutting any taxes. We've still got the highest tax burden in 70 years, which I, obviously is quite an odd position to be in. But also, I just, I think as well, what frustrates me is when Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt talk about, well, we need to stick to our plan to, to reduce inflation. I don't think, I think the plan is let's do nothing and let's just hope it reduces. And and the only plan that they've ever had has been, right, we need to lift the burden off families who are ultimately, they're the ones that struggle most, you know, those maybe people who are disabled, people on the lowest incomes or people, you know, young families. And, you know, they, they even talk about reducing uh, the benefit payments that they've, they obviously announced the free childcare policy, but that's not going to be implemented till after the general election. So I do think, they actually don't have a plan to reduce inflation. I think they're just hoping and praying it naturally reduces and then they'll call a general election. So so I think that is their plan. At least Labour have a plan to try and invest 
sensibly in in areas that it's needed. So I, I think, to be honest, it's it's a dire position to be in. I think I think Christine is absolutely right that I think Jeremy Hunt. Obviously, I don't like him at all, but I think he's one of those people that he's very vanilla, isn't he, within the Tory party? He's just someone where you go, you've not upset anyone. Can you just look at the economy for a little bit and just tie us over and we'll, you know, hope it sorts itself out and then in time for the election and then we'll promise some tax cuts. If they then get elected, they think, oh, actually, we can't promise these tax cuts. Sorry about that, everyone. And, and then that'll, that's how it goes. I mean, I mean, the trouble is that, that governments can't do very much about inflation uh, since they gave the Bank of England independence. So the only real weapon you've got to fight it is interest rates. And that's not a, a government decision. Uh, that's the, the Bank of England Monetary Policy, uh, Policy Committee decision. So that, that, that um, at the moment, I think that the answer is you don't make inflation worse rather than have anything to, to, make, it, to make it better. Uh, and that means not putting more money into the economy, which would be inflationary. And that's what tax cuts would do. So I think broadly, Jeremy Hunt is absolutely right where he is with his position. Um, and it is also the position that Rachel Reeves will inherit and continue, that the that the, the next Labour government will keep Tory spending plans, certainly for at least the first two years and maybe longer than that. So in that sense, Rachel Reeves and Jeremy Hunt are on kind of the same side. When's the election going to be then? Uh, well, I, I still think that they'll they'll uh, wait till till October next year, in the hope, as Freddie says, that something will turn up um, and things will look better for them. Uh, if uh, Rishi Sunak really wanted to save the Tory Party, he would sacrifice himself, call an election early, hope to catch Labour on the hop, and make sure they're only in for a short time so the Tories could come back. But prime ministers don't do that; they don't go in to an election knowing they'll lose their job. So. I reckon it's autumn next year. Yeah, I think you're right, but it's not. It's it's a off the wall suggestion to go earlier and hope for and hope that the electorate decides that they're going to stay with the devil they know. It could still be May, could it not, Christina? Honestly, I'm I'm hopeless at this kind of thing because I really I really don't know. But I I think they'll leave it as long as they can, just desperately hoping that something comes along that makes things look better. And Freddie, will the young people vote at the next election or, or are, are the parties right in, in forgetting it, that they even exist? I mean, there's a poll that came out, I think it was a YouGov one, and usually YouGov is relatively biased to, to the Tories in, in, in their favour. And and wasn't a poll that something like 18 to 24-year-olds, only 1% or less than 1% mm -hmm. are planning to vote for the Conservatives, which obviously isn't great for the next election but you know for the generations to come that could be absolutely devastating that you know when the age range between say 70 plus you know in 20 years time there might be less of that and then you've got young people coming through you know that could be devastating for the for the for the Tories going forward I've heard rumours and obviously I think it's just from the press etc so nothing that I've been privy to that the Rishi Sunak might call election when inflation gets down to about three percent so it might be you know, trying to catch Labour out, but in a little, you know, bit, bit of a better position. But who knows? One thing I would say, just coming from Nigel's comments, though, I know he said that the Bank of England are the ones that, you know, sort inflation. I'm obviously of the opinion that inflation hasn't been caused by workers. I've always been thought, sorry, my opinion is that inflation has been caused by the massive excess profits that have been allowed, that companies have been able to make for the past 10 years. Ordinary people go out to work, earn a living, come home, then go back out to work. They're not the ones who've caused the inflation, but unfortunately, they're the ones taking the brunt. Hopefully, that means 
the Tories will get an absolute kicking in the next election, whenever that will be. And hopefully, especially all those Tory MPs who've been incredibly cocky, you know, such as J.P. Ruby's Moggs, I really hope they get kicked out of their seats too. Can I just say on the young people front, I do think that the house building thing is one of the few policies that actually is targeted or at least partly targeted towards young people for a while, because basically young people seem to have been completely forgotten by our politicians and maybe that will get some of them to vote. And Freddie, is your party ready for government? Absolutely. I I think, and and also, I think it was, was it Greg Hans, who's the, the Conservative Party chairman, and he's been going, whatever Labour, whatever Labour run, they run it badly. That's absolutely not true at all. I mean, obviously, as, as, a, as a, a Labour council and cabinet member in Preston, we're so proud of our achievements. We, I think we've been in the government and waiting under Starmer, and I think we actually are ready. And, and I think our record in local government and past Labour governments throughout the past century have proved that when we get in power, we do deliver and we do put in place long-lasting policies that will help many, not the few. And uh, Nigel, could there be a surprise? Could there be a, a sting in the tail and we end up with a, another five years of Conservative government? Um, Well, I wouldn't put a bet on it, certainly. Uh, However, uh, you never say never in politics that that, uh, things can always go wrong. The Labour Labour Party could implode. The Tory party could actually stop the boats. It could get inflation uh, halved. It could see an NHS waiting list going down, all the the pledges that Rishi Sunak is making, and that would make them contenders again. At the moment, I don't see any of those things happening. So we're almost certain looking at another uh, another uh, Labour government and I felt that this particular conference reminded me so much of 1996 without the euphoria and of course Tony Blair went on to get a landslide the following year. Well there you go that's that looks like the scenario that we're heading towards. Thank you all I think we've nailed it. You've been listening to Right on the Nail with me Chris Wright. Thank you to our panellists Nigel Nelson, Christina Patterson and Councillor Freddie Bailey for joining me. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and a rating on your podcast app. The episode was produced by Tom Platts and is published by New Thinking. Remember, we have a new episode every week, so catch you next time on Right on the Nail. Right on the Nail.